I'm Dennis Levick. This is my lovely wife, Tracy. Hi, I'm John Rudnick. We are Barry and Anita Chenault. My name's Edward Devlin. My name is Rosalie Devlin. Hi, we are Brent and Sheila Howell. My name is Matt Leesman. Hi, my name is Hannah Rollins. My name is Chad Peterson. So evangelism to me is just basically sharing the gospel, um, outreaching to non-believers. I guess I work in a place where talking about being a Christian, talking about God uh, can almost be like a laughable subject. It's difficult to openly talk about um, being a Christian and, and the struggles of being a Christian or you know the, the happiness that being a Christian can bring you. Church, church for me has been the one of the few places in the world that I've been able to find good people. Church to me is just community coming together um, to worship God, hold each other accountable, um, serve the community, outreach, um, all those things. Amen. Well, man, I'm excited about this morning's opportunity. We're going to spend most of our time in Acts chapter 17. So if you want to find your way there, uh, by all means, do that. Grab your bulletin as well. We are right uh, in the middle of our small group season for the fall. And that is part of your prep for small group season. Fill in those uh, blanks that are there and that'll help you be prepared for the conversations you'll have in your small group. It's a really, really useful thing. You can also, by the way, access that on our app. So I hope, again, you'll get that thing because it's a it's a great, great tool in a lot of ways. So there is one other thing that I hope you all have that we'll get to toward the end, and that's this little pamphlet that I mentioned last week. And I I did say last week, if you take it with you, bring it back. I wouldn't. I would ask for a show of hands as to how many actually brought it back, but maybe you did. So, good for you. Uh, anyway, we're going to touch on those things as we get to the end. But while you're finding your way to Acts 17, let me give you just a couple of things to to remember. This coming Saturday, two things are happening. First, at eight o'clock is our men's breakfast. So, guys, come on, plan to eat, enjoy a good. Uh, challenge. I think uh, Marcus is going to be offering our challenge this Saturday. And then we're going to stick around and everybody else who comes at nine o'clock and we're going to have a work day. It's going to include trimming some bushes and so on outside, emptying a couple of uh, offices, moving some furnishings, doing a lot of cleaning, uh, perhaps a little bit of painting as well. So there's just going to be a lot of options. Come prepared to do whatever you think you might want to do. And uh, we'll have something for you, and we'll spend the morning serving the Lord and kind of preparing ourselves to uh, clean up and do our best to get ready for this holiday season that's coming. Production training. As you can imagine, there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes uh, here on a Sunday morning. And if you are interested in being part of that, helping to work with the, the sound or the media and so on, uh, we would love to get you connected to people who can train you in that. You don't have to have a degree in engineering to run uh, the sound system or the media, but we will train you to know what you need to know. So uh, if you are interested, you can talk to Rachel while she's uh, here on a Sunday or go to uh, events and sign up at gocoastal.org and uh, we'd love to have you. Pop-up shop. This is from now until November 13th. You can order stuff online that is coastal related, all right? Shirts, t-shirts, sweatshirts, hoodies, all sorts of good things. 
are in there. I've already ordered mine, and uh, it's available to you. And everything, all the proceeds of it are going toward missions. So uh, we're not just uh, doing another fundraiser. So I'd love to have you get on there and take care of that. And then one last thing that's a little further away is November 6th is our next We Are Coastal. I know we have some folks that are new to us here. I would love to have you come to We Are Coastal. It was in the video at the beginning. It's everything you need to know in about a three-hour stretch uh, to make an informed decision about being part of Coastal Church. And so I would love to have you be there. Uh, gocoastal.org forward slash events, I think, is the same address there. And look for We Are Coastal. We would love to have you come. Food, lunch is provided. Child care is provided. It's a Sunday after church, so Sunday afternoon. So plan on coming. We'd love to have you. All right. I suspect as we are in this series on evangelism, even those who have been around the family of God for a while, there is something about it that for many of us, when we talk about evangelism, there's just a little a little hesitation, like I'm just not sure how to go about that, right? Last week, we talked about the why and the what of evangelism. Why should we evangelize and What are we telling people? The gospel. So today, I want to really work diligently at making this a very how-oriented question. What, how exactly do we go about sharing the gospel? So evangelism includes a lot more than just the part where you share the gospel. Evangelism is part of your lifestyle. Evangelism is your relationships with your friends. It's sowing seeds of the gospel and talking about the Lord and what God has done in your life and and what's happening in your life spiritually and what's happening with your church family. It's it's just building a, a culture around your friends and among your friends that lets them know there's something about me that kind of stands apart uh, in a positive way, right? Not in a not in a negative or kind of weird way. Just letting people evangelism is a very broad thing. But at some point in time, we have to share the gospel, right? And so today, I want to talk about that, and I want to do it primarily from this section in chapter 17 of Acts, beginning down in verse 16. Now. He is in Athens, and he has gotten there because he began in Thessalonica. And as he shared the gospel and taught about Jesus there, some devout Jews, very religious people, got very upset with him because he wasn't following the party line as far as religion is concerned. And they basically threw him out of town, he and his his, uh, compadres, and they went on to Berea where one of the most interesting statements in in Scripture to me is made that those in Thessalonica, it says, were more noble than those in, or rather, those in Berea were more noble than those in Thessalonica because they searched the Scriptures daily to see whether these things are so. So I want us to be a Berea church, right? I want you to go home. I want you to take your notes, and I want you to study the Scriptures and make sure I'm not messing up, right? So that's a really good thing, and we want to have conversations to further the discussion about Scripture. But while he was in Berea, the same thing happened. That group from Thessalonica heard he was in Berea and said, oh, well, we'll go down there and cause trouble for him there too, and they did. And so the brothers who were in in Berea sent Paul on to Athens, and Silas and Timothy, part of his missionary team, stayed there in Berea for a little while. 
So that's the quick background and setting. And then we come to verse 16 of Acts 17, and it says, While Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So in this context of Paul kind of hanging out, waiting at Athens for them to come, he begins this process of evangelizing. So this is something about the culture of Athens that's described for us here. There is something in the background of this city that is just stirring Paul's heart. He says, it says here in the text that he saw the city was full of idols. I read that uh, during the time of Nero, the city of Athens contained more than 3,000 statues, actually, uh, that many people, if you'd show up at the uh, gate coming into their home, would have a, a representation of a god. And these were gods or heroes or whatever, statues everywhere that you went. They were just all over the place. And so this is the place where Socrates and Aristotle and Plato and all these guys we heard about in, in philosophy class, they were all hanging out here. And everybody's talking philosophy and talking the latest thing and the latest theory that has come up. And Paul, as he sees that happening, becomes driven by compassion. It's interesting to me, we sometimes get angry when people think differently than us, right? People who have a different philosophy of life, a different way of looking at things, we get, we get mad about it. What's the matter with them? I can't believe they're this, this, or this, or they think this way or that way. Paul is driven to compassion, and when, his, when it says his spirit is provoked. It's a, there's a distress in there. I, I liken it to what happened to Jeremiah. He describes himself later in his uh, prophecy in Jeremiah chapter 20 as having a fire burning in his bones. I, when I tried not to say something, it was like a fire burning inside of me. I could not not speak. That's what Paul was like. 2 Corinthians 5.14, uh, Paul describes the, uh, the experience as the love of Christ controlling him because we have concluded this, one has died for all, therefore all have died. If everybody's in that condition, the love of Christ demands that I do something. That's what Paul was feeling in this moment, driven by compassion. So he began a dialogue in two ways. It was kind of formal he was in the synagogue talking with the Jews. He was in their worship experience and talking with them at, at their place of worship. And he was in the marketplace, formal and informal. Now, most of us don't have very many opportunities to formally preach the gospel. Occasionally, but for the most part, most we are not customarily in that setting. I am, I get to every Sunday, I get to talk about the gospel, I get to prepare something and share it with you and share it with whoever will come or whoever will uh, watch online. And so 
we're, we're sometimes in a setting where we can present the gospel in a prepared and formal fashion, but the rest of it is what I'm interested in. He had a dialogue. That's the word that's actually in the original language. It's the one from which we get our word dialogue. He reasoned with them. That's fascinating to me because these were not all people who would have agreed with him. In fact, as we go through this account, we're going to realize there were some people that made fun of him, some people who thought he was just goofy. But he reasoned with them. He didn't yell at them. He didn't harass them. He dialogued with them. So before I get too much further, I want to give you a couple of things to remember as you are dialoguing with people in the marketplace, which is where you are at work, where you shop, where your family is, where your friends are in your neighborhood, in everyday common life. Number one, remember, they are made in God's image. The people that you're trying to talk to, to influence for Christ, are not the enemy. No matter how frustrated you may be with their lifestyle choices or whatever it is that, that makes you concerned, they are not the enemy. They are deceived and blinded by the enemy. So we dialogue with them. Find some common ground. Our goal is not to get notches in the spine of our Bible. Oh, good, got another one. Now, sometimes, sometimes God will give you an opportunity to just out of the blue talk to somebody. You'll be on a, a business trip traveling somewhere, and God opens a door, and you'll get to do that. But I'm talking about in everyday life, find some common ground. Understand what they're saying. We are really good, and this is increasingly true in our culture, which is why I think this is important. In our culture, we categorize everybody, right? And we get categorized. Uh, I, I had some time to spend with my sister this week. She came to visit, and she was talking about an interaction she had with someone uh, over <laughs> a political topic, and she just made one statement that was not incredibly politically charged, and the person lit into her and said she's a... She's a hypocrite, and she's this and that and the other thing. And my sister said to them, what exactly did I say? And as it turns out, she just overgeneralized and categorized her. Oh, you must be one of them, right? The problem with our frustration with that happening as believers is we do that too, right? Don't overgeneralize. Try to understand what they're saying. There may be some truth to what they're saying. They may have just drawn unwarranted conclusions, right? But we want to get to the argument so we can win the argument. Disagree if you must, but don't be combative. It is not necessary to be combative to disagree, even if someone is being combative. And do not assault another person's character. These are people who, if they trust in Jesus, will have their sins forgiven and will be able to spend forever in heaven with you as a brother or a sister in Christ. So dialogue with people. 
Carry on conversations that are redemptive conversations. Learn how, practice how to take a conversation and turn it toward the things of the Lord. Work at whatever it is you like to do. If you like to go fishing or you like to whatever, find ways, think them through if you need to at first, to to take what you're talking about and talk about how it relates to your life. This is part of the reason I think uh, evangelism with our friends is so important because we're listening to what is important to them in their life. And they will want to listen to what's important to you in your life. Unless what's important to you is something you want to beat them over the head with. He dialogued. He reasoned with them. And he was compelled by the opportunity that was before him. So now I'm I'm continuing to read in verse 18. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So let's stop there just for a second before I finish reading. And let's remember, at some point, we do have to get there, right? We can't just talk in circles around, you know, heavenly things and religious things and never get to the gospel. At some point, they have to hear the gospel because they're not going to hear, they're not going to believe if they can't hear the gospel. But 19, verse 19 says, they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, which was kind of the central hub in town for philosophy and so on, and said, may we know that what this new teaching is you're presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. They love to talk about the latest philosophy, the latest idea. Even if most of them were recycled ideas. Now, is it just me or does that sound like America? We love to hear the latest thing. People sell books because they've come up with this really great idea that if you look long and hard enough, has probably had a book written about it before. Yeah, but mine is new and better. New and improved. That's always our thing, right? I mean, right down to toothpaste. New and improved. Way better than last year's. Well, then why was I using yours last year if this one is so much better? It's just a prettier box, probably. But anyway, we we can leverage that. Because increasingly, the reality of the gospel and the truth about Jesus and his his perfect life and his death and his burial and his resurrection, those things are strange to people's ears. We can leverage curiosity. It was into this environment that they invited him to talk. Tell us about this. So we want to know. When the time comes... In your conversations and in your relationships, whether it's a few days in or a few weeks or maybe several years in in some cases, when the time comes, what will you say? I want you to remember four words. God, man, Christ, response. 
Those are the four things you have to talk about with them for them to get an adequate understanding so that they can become rightly related to God. Four words. Now, of course, you'll know them, you'll recognize them because you've dealt with that. They need to know and understand a little bit about who God is because if I don't understand the holiness of God, I may never be convinced that I'm a sinner because I'm a sinner not because I'm worse than so-and-so. I'm a sinner because God is perfectly holy and I'm not. Once people understand the holiness of God, they will naturally conclude, oh, well, I'm not that. We all know that. I, I don't have had any conversation with anybody who said, oh, well, yeah, I am. I'm good. Even if they think they're good compared to others, right? They're, they're not perfect, and they know it. So they need to know a little bit about God. They need to know about man, which is, of course, concluded as a result of what we know about God, that I'm a sinner, and I'm therefore estranged from God. They need to know about Jesus, they need to know the truth about who he is and what he accomplished on their behalf. And they need to know that there has to be a response. Just knowing it doesn't make a difference. Just information about Jesus or thinking he's a really great guy or even a prophet or a miracle worker or any of those things, those are not enough. They're true, but they're not enough. They have to respond by faith, repenting of their sins and believing the gospel. God, man, Christ, response. Now, I want you to look for those things while we're going through the rest of Acts 17, all right? Beginning in verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For... As I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives all mankind life and breath and everything. He's talking about God, right? He begins with who God is. And isn't it interesting, too? He's in this pagan city with thousands of idols everywhere you turn. And he doesn't start in with, what is wrong with you people with all of these idols? What does he say? I perceive that you are very religious. He connects with them. And I noticed that you have one that says to the unknown God. That's the God I'm talking to you about. They were so concerned that they not offend a deity that they put up this altar to that unknown God, just in case there was one, and it turns out there was, that they didn't try and worship. He's conversing. He's dialoguing with them. And he begins by teaching them that God is self-sufficient. That God is the creator. 
Creation is a great discussion to have that helps people to understand who God is. He doesn't live in any of your temples. They had temples to all to various gods. And Paul said, the true God, the one that you're worshiping without understanding him, he doesn't need a temple to be worshiped in. In fact, he doesn't need anything for you. Rather, he sustains you. He gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. In fact, Job described God as being above everything. There was no sense in which God was somehow equal to anyone or anything else. Job chapter 38 and verse 1, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger. Well, that's not Job, that's Psalms. Excuse me. I didn't think that looked right. No, it's up there. Here we go. The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Now, you, you, know, you understand the background here, right? Job has been through this horrible experience. And he has been asking questions all along. Like, I don't get it. I don't understand why this is happening to me. I don't understand why, why this has taken place. And he's got his wife who said, just die and get it over with. This is, you know, curse God and die. And his friends have come who initially just wanted to sit and hang out and, and commiserate with him and help to support him. And then they began to tell him why it was happening, which was basically, well, this is really bad stuff happening. So you must be a really bad person. Thank you for that, friends, right? And eventually, as Job goes through the process, he moves from asking questions to questioning God's right to do stuff. So after he does that for a long time, we have the record of 30-some chapters, right? God says, all right, I'll question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. <laughs> Who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? It's interesting to me that God didn't ever come around to answering Job's questions about his situation. What God did was give Job a more accurate understanding of who he was. He didn't give him an answer. He let Job know he was the answer. He's self-sufficient. He doesn't need anything from us. Verse 26, Paul says back in Acts 17, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Oh, I read that. Excuse me, 26. He made from one man... Every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. God is not only self-sufficient, he's sovereign. He controls everything. He made all men, all people were made by him. The Athenians thought themselves to be superior to everyone else because they were really smart. He determined their times, that's their lifespan, as well as right down to the boundaries 
and the times that nations would exist, all under the sovereign control of this God that you guys don't, have, don't even know his name. He's still talking about God. Why did God do all of that? Verse 27 gives us the answer. That they, that is the people, every man on earth, should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's not actually far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Well, now he's talking about man, right? Now he's talking about mankind. Why did God do all of these things? Why did he let us know that in spite of the fact that he's self-sufficient and sovereign, why did he do all of these things? So that we might seek after him. So that mankind might look for him. And if we would be honest enough to do that, we would get more information. I love these verses from Romans chapter 1. It's an incredible passage of Scripture describing who God is and why God is so angry. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, as the Athenians would have, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Why was God's anger kindled against mankind? Because he made it plain in the creation, which is where Paul started, just exactly who he was. People don't have an excuse for not believing there's a God. He is supreme, and we are responsible. God has a right to expect us to come to the conclusion there is a God and I'm not him. We are personally responsible. We are not far. He is not far from each one of us. He, he identifies each of us. Our existence is bound up in God. So he's talked about God. He's talked about man. Now he's going to talk about the response. What's verse 29 say? Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. We must first acknowledge who God is. 
our response, what men must do, begins with acknowledgement. We recognize who God is. God is much greater than we perhaps had previously thought. No matter how great we conceive God to be, he's greater. Our view must line up with his view, not the other way around. We don't get to come up with an image and a picture. That's why it is the reason idolatry is wrong is because it puts limits on God. No matter how great an image you give, it cannot adequately represent God. And that's why so many cultures had multiple images and multiple gods because there were so many things that they conceived. It's still never enough to adequately represent God. So we acknowledge God. Then we repent. Verse 30, right? I already read that. We must repent. God overlooked it in the past, but now is calling all men to repent. Invitation is too soft a word. God commands us to repent of our sin. Because, verse 31 tells us, he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So we've talked about God and man, and we've talked about the response necessary, and now he's talking about Christ. There is someone by whom all men will be judged, and he proved his validity as the judge by coming back to life again. The judge and the basis for the judgment is Jesus. And so the third thing, so we must acknowledge God, we must repent, we must receive Jesus. God has always been more interested in repentance than judgment. Have you thought about that? We create images in our mind of God as a stern, harsh judge just waiting to pound somebody because they haven't turned to him. God has always been more interested in people repenting than in having to pronounce judgment. And then lastly, these last few verses, you'll recognize some of these things because these are some of the responses you have gotten perhaps. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. There were some who rejected what he said, even made fun of him. But others said, we'll hear you again about this. So there were some who just kind of put it off, right? They procrastinated. They, they, there was indecision on their part. They weren't so sure. I don't know if I'm ready yet. But some men joined him and believed among also uh, whom also were Dionysius, the Arapagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So there were some who rejected it outright. There were some who put it off. And there were some who said, you know, this really makes a lot of sense. And they believed. That process continues to happen to this day. We enter into a conversation with people in our particular marketplace and we proclaim to people God, man, Christ, 
and the response that's necessary. Those four topics have to eventually come up. So how you do that is going to be the next thing. Now, I know I'm going to probably throw everybody off. I'm not going to put on the screen the thoughts to take home. They're in your bulletin. Think them through. That's great because I want to do two more things yet before I'm done. One is with the pamphlet that I talked to you about, okay? This little pamphlet we have put together, on the inside of it, I'm not going to go through the whole thing, as you can imagine, but on the inside, the very first thing at the top is sharing the gospel. I talked about that last week, the what of the gospel, right? Jesus is God. He died for our sins. He bodily rose from the dead. Those three elements... Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. That's the gospel. So what has to happen for a person to come into a right relationship with God? We repent of our sins. We believe in the gospel. We receive Jesus, John 1, 12. As many as received him, to them he gave power to become sons of God. So that's the event that has to happen, Right? How you get people to that point may happen in a variety of ways. I would encourage you to have kind of a plan in mind, at least especially early in your evangelistic efforts, so that when the time comes, you, you, you know where you're going with what you're saying. Now, now, please, 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 don't pull out your pamphlet say, okay, point one, right? They've heard that from other groups, right? Who you know they're reading a script that they have memorized. And if you get them off script, they're lost. They don't know what comes next because you, you skipped at, verse, at point three down to point six and they didn't get four and five in there yet. So, so don't, don't use it as a, I got to get through all these points. There may be conversation that's going to jump them from this point to that point. Maybe they're not yet ready to trust Christ, but they need to hear all of this. So there are four ways in this pamphlet. The bridge illustration, the Romans road to salvation, the four spiritual laws, and what's called the three circles. These are commonly used methods of sharing the gospel. These all of our pastors at Coastal generally use one of these four things when we're sharing the gospel with someone. So I'm going to talk to you briefly about the Romans Road because that's the one I use. The rest of them are in here. And on the back, if you scan those QR codes, the bridge illustration, the Romans Road to Salvation, and the three circles all have a website they'll take you to that will give you more information and more detail. So let me quickly tell you how I use the Romans Road to Salvation. When it gets to the gospel, I want people to understand first that they're lost because I don't see any point in getting saved if I'm not lost to start with. So I need to know I'm a sinner, right? Romans 3 talks about being a sinner. 3, 10 through 12 says nobody's righteous, not even one. And Romans 3.23 talks about all have fallen short. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that's where I've done it. And I've done it here before. If God is here, it doesn't matter where you are on the continuum under here. Everybody is short of the glory of God. We are all imperfect, so we're all sinners. Then I go to Romans chapter 6 and I say, and the difficulty is there's a penalty from, for that. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and 
the wages of sin is death, separation from God. However, the same verse in 6.23 says, the gift of God is eternal life. Well, what's that about? Well, that's talking about Jesus, who in Romans 5, verse 8, it tells us that when we were still sinners, God shows his love for us in that when we're still sinners, Christ died for us. Really, really important to know that it is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ that is the key to unlocking our spiritual rebirth. From Romans chapter 6, I go to Romans chapter 10. And the, the thing I like about this one is you, all you have to memorize is Romans 3. Go to Romans 3, highlight 10 to 12, and highlight 13, uh, 23. And next to verse 23, write Romans 6, 23 in the margin of your Bible. So then you can flip over there, right? It's better to memorize it because if you don't happen to have that copy of the Bible with you, then you're not stuck. But so then I go to, to Romans 10. Well, how do I access this Christ died for me? That's great. What do I have to do? That if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Romans 10, 9. In fact, everybody, Romans 10, 13 says, who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then I jump back a chapter or two to Romans chapter 8, verse 1, and say, here's the best part. Once you trust Jesus, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's my methodology. When I share the gospel, it's generally some combination of those things. If I happen to have a Bible with me, I don't have to leave that book. That's just the way I do it. I learned it years ago, and have just commonly used it. You may find a bunch of verses. You may just use the ones that are up there in that sharing the gospel section. You may learn the bridge illustration. You draw two things, two, two cliffs. Here's, here's man. Here's God. We're trying to get to God. Man tries works. He tries this. He tries that. He tries the other thing. He tries to go to a good church, all these things, and none of them get me to the other side. I need a bridge to get me there. Draw the cross in there and write Jesus across it. I need Jesus to get me from where I am to where God is. Find a system and use the system, okay? If you have questions, you can use those things. You can talk to me, talk to our worship team members. We'd love to talk with you. Last thing I want you to do, and I, I know I'm running a little over, but I'm not really sorry. So, <laughs> so I say that. You have in your hand, I hope, three post-it notes. Here's what I want you to do. To some of you, this will not be new. To some of it, it may be. Uh, we, we talk not uncommonly at Coastal about what we call our Reach 3 group. Now, I have more than three on my list, but I would like for you to write down three names of people that you are involved in life with who, as far as you know, don't know Jesus, and who you are asking God to save. Now, please don't write down a politician, unless you know them personally. Please don't write down uh, a Hollywood movie star, unless you know them personally. Write down people who you are going to be praying for and asking God to give you the opportunity to share Jesus with them. 
you're praying for that person to come to Christ. You're putting their name down because you're going to invite them to our Christmas Eve service in December because they're going to come and hear the gospel. We're going to talk about Advent all, all December, every Sunday of December, and Christmas Eve, we're going to talk about Christ, the light of the world, and we're going to have a candlelight service, and they're going to come to understand. They'll hear it. Now, by all means, invite them to Christmas Eve, but don't let me be your default evangelist, okay? Talk to your friends about Jesus. Talk to your family members. Talk to your coworkers. Put the names of people you're really concerned about. Now, I have about a half a dozen people on my list, but I have written down my three, and here's what I want you to do. We're going to, after we sing, or even if you want to while you sing, we're going to post these back in the back on the back wall, or I didn't check this morning, so let me check. Yep, they'll stick there. So honestly, if you want to come up here, as part of your response to this message and, and put a name on one of these walls up here. If you want to, as you leave, don't put it on the block wall. It won't stick. It'll fall off and somebody will step on it. We'll lose track of that name, okay? We want to ask God to save these people. These are our friends. These are our family members. These are people we have relationships with and we want to personally be connected to these people. Okay? So write down three. This is your reach three. And I have three different ones, so you can have three different stickies. And here's what I want to do. I'm going to leave them up here. I know it's going to look a little unsightly, but not really, right? I mean, what's unsightly about the names of people we're praying will come to Christ? That's not unsightly in a church. Maybe we'll try and make it a little neater. And here's what I want you to do. When you come in next Sunday, come a few minutes early and wander along and check out the names and pray for them. All you're going to have is their first name. God doesn't need you to know their last name. He does, right? Can we do that? So everybody got three of these? Get three of these. If you have more, great. That's fine. Put, grab some more when you go out if there's some more stickies around. I want us to be actively thinking about who am I going to invite with me to come to church? Who am I going to, to invite into a relationship with Jesus? Who am I in a relationship with that I can make a difference in their life? All right? So, man, I, I hope you'll do it. I hope you'll be part of that process. Let's begin to see what God will do with a church full of people who are committed to having specific individuals they're seeking to reach for Jesus. God may give you opportunities with people that aren't on your list. Praise the Lord. Go for it. But God, in his sovereign wisdom, responds to our prayers. And if we're praying for these people, what an incredible opportunity, right? So I'm going to close in prayer. In fact, I'm going to pray over the names that are being written down all across this room, and our team's going to come, and then we're going to sing. And then as you leave, you come on up front. Maybe if you want to, while we're singing, it's just half a song or so, but come on up here. The prayer team's up here. Stick your names up here if you want to, or on the back, on the sheet-rocked wall in the back, okay? Uh, that'll be able to hold them. And, and, and put them high enough so we can see them. I mean, you know, It'd be kind of fun to be the one to put them at the bottom, but nobody's going to bend over and see it. So uh, let's, we want to pray, right? All right, let's pray together. Father in heaven, 
I'm so grateful for the grace that you showed to us in sending Jesus. We are privileged to be your children through faith in Jesus. And Lord, we have friends around us. We have family members. We have co-workers for whom we are concerned because as far as we know, they don't know Jesus and they are separated from you. And if they die in that condition, they will forever be separated from you. And oh God, we want to be the ones to reach these people for Christ. So I pray, Lord, over the names that have been written down. These are just stickies with names on them to us, except for the three that we wrote because we're the ones who know these people, but oh God, I'm so grateful you know all of these names. And I pray that you would begin to sovereignly work in the hearts and lives of these people as we begin to be deliberate in developing redemptive conversations and as we make it a goal to seek to talk to them about Christ and their need of the gospel. And even as we intend to invite them to church, especially in this upcoming Christmas season when people are so much more inclined to take an invitation to come to church. So God, I pray that you would work, that we would begin to see people coming back over a Sunday or two and peeling some of these names back off because perhaps already you've worked in a person's heart and we've seen that life changed for, the, for eternity. So thank you, Father. Thank you for an example of somebody like Paul who, who just built redemptive conversations into his everyday life. Help us to be those kind of people who love our friends enough to share Christ with them. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the reality of it and how it's changed our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.